0: you may have noticed that the biblical view of human sexuality is despised by our world. And you may have noticed as well that watching our culture's sexual beliefs and practices play out is like watching a crowded passenger train derail at full speed. On the first point, it is clear that sexual ethics is an away game for Bible-believing Christians. We are, so to speak, the visiting team. And the bleachers encircling the playing field are filled with hostile spectators who point their fingers at us and scream at us that we are losers and we should slink off the field in disgrace. How dare you tell me what I can and cannot do with my body? How dare you? How dare you teach the repressive idea that sex must be reserved for one man and one woman living within a lifelong covenant of marriage. That's absurd. It is repressive. It is outdated and hateful. Just go away. And yet... We who know Christ as Savior, we witness the unfolding disaster of the world's approach to sexual ethics on a daily basis, don't we? Let me take this one illustration. The sexual revolution of the 1960s and beyond piggybacked off accepted evolutionary and modernistic convictions. What were those convictions? There's a, a deep philosophy that was written about for decades and was embraced by many, and that is that the human body is little more than a slab of meat. We are biological machines with sexual needs, that is all. There is no creator, there is no lawgiver, the fittest survive, do what comes naturally. That was the mantra. And a generation of young men ordered their lives to these ideas. Surviving as the fittest, they found pleasure in free sex wherever they could find it. And then they grew older. And then they became important people. And one day, the Me Too movement crushed them like a sudden rock slide on a hiking trail. Turns out that sexual promiscuity actually hurts a lot of women. Who knew that? Men who followed the world's playbook suddenly found that all the rules had changed. And before they knew what hit them, the world was screaming at them Away with you, you miserable, lecherous, misogynistic animals. Get out of here. Well, it's just one glimpse at the messy carnage. We could go on and on, all day. So we talked about sexual disease and divorce, the tsunami-like health crisis of pornography, abortion, the legalized murder of unborn human beings who are not guaranteed the status of personhood, recognized to be human, but not persons. Why? Why? Their mothers must be free to get pregnant without giving birth lest we saddle them with a problem men don't have. It's a train wreck. People die. We watch in horror as people neuter themselves, allowing doctors to mutilate their bodies and subject them to hormonal treatments that assault their bodies. We watch in horror as news reports disclose systemic sexual abuse of over 1,000 identifiable victims by celibate clergy who were protected from prosecution by their superiors for seven decades in Pennsylvania. We watch this train wreck in horror while the world preaches sexual liberation and rages against the Bible's repressive insistence on monogamous heterosexual marriage as the only legitimate theater for, for sexuality. Well, it is obvious. There is a massive chasm that exists between the life we know under the sovereign lordship of our risen Savior and the life our world promotes, promises, and pursues. But what I'd like us to consider today, at least to begin, is the why. Why are we so far apart? Could you articulate that? Could you express it to somebody who asked that question to you from a different angle? Are your feet firmly planted on ground solid enough that you do not merely slink away and say, well, to each his own? Secondly, I'd like to set forth what the unbelieving world sacrifices in its promotion of sexual liberation. Said simply then, why do we believe what we believe and what difference does it make? This is a one-off sermon today. It's not connected to a study in the book of Proverbs. We're going to link our thoughts to Proverbs chapter 5. And as we do that, I'll develop this text in a fairly strange way for what is normal for us as a congregation. But we will use this passage and invite you to turn there to Proverbs chapter 5 as we base upon this text... These ideas as we pursue these questions, the why and the what difference does it make. And in this rather strange development of this chapter, we're going to spend a lot of time outside of the chapter, particularly here at the beginning. So just all of that by warning, I haven't lost my way, but just in the purposes of the text for us today. We look first of all then at Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and we note here the warning of the Father the Bible-believing, follower of God, instructing sons, probably at Solomon's court, but says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. That's the call to pay attention to a wisdom, to arm yourself with a wisdom from above concerning sexual morality as the text will unfold as we look at these first two verses, there is such a chasm between them and where we are in our setting that it requires that we bridge that gap, at least in the context of this message. What is understood here, but not stated, is that you must make a fundamental choice between two sources of information when it comes to sexual morality. You are making that choice. It may be a settled matter for you, but you are daily making that choice between two sources of information, and there's only two sources ultimately. The first is the subjective determination of man, and this call from the Father to the Son is coming from a different angle. But we have this area, and let's chase this just for a few moments. But as human beings, we are free and able to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. That's the thesis. That's the source of information that many are tracking with. So we could look at this a lot of different ways. It comes out and is expressed in different ways we have for instance materialism and modernism the body is a biological machine with certain needs and we may feed our bodies what they want it's just the body after all there's no moral code for its biological functions no such thing or it may be the track of romanticism or transcendentalism or existentialism and it's basically they basically boil down at least in this point to what is right Is what feels right. You're free to determine what is right for you. You can trust your heart to steer you rightly. If the passion is there, if the directive is there from within, then that's the right way to go. And that's the source of information people plug into. My heart's telling me this. It's okay. Or it might be postmodernism, which taps the communal, ever changing consensus that each generation constructs socially. So sexual ethics are constantly changing, and that's a good thing. We figure it out as we go. So once upon a time, and it wasn't all that long ago, homosexual relationships were considered an abomination in this country, while some of us were still alive, or were alive. A mental illness then, it became, until the 1970s. And now, a natural expression of love to be protected and celebrated by everyone. That's postmodernism. It keeps changing, it keeps shifting with the consensus of, of the day. As mankind evolves, we grow increasingly enlightened as to what is right and what is wrong. So that the Supreme Court now recently has told us as a church, essentially, I know they weren't thinking about us, but they told us as a church. That the position that we're presenting here today is hateful. It is destructive. It is hurtful to people. That's the evolution of the idea. Because the source of information comes from man. So let me illustrate. In the Hellenistic world, the sexual use of young boys by soldiers on campaign was accepted and encouraged in our day that would be unthinkably wrong and thankfully so but in early america homosexuals and heterosexual couples living out of wedlock were widely considered to be sinners today these activities are encouraged and protected by law and celebrated in the culture the evolution Figure it out as you go. We will decide as a community what is right and wrong. Ever-shifting, ever-changing. If you are pursuing these things in these ways, I encourage you to consider today that this approach orders sexual activity to a subjective, ever-changing, trial and error, self-determining, do-what-you-feel-is-best Pursue what is popular standard of morality. You're tagging into that if you are pursuing and wherever you are finding sexual pleasure outside of biblical marriage, you are tapping into this approach. You don't really have an option. It's one or the other. You are saying to one degree or another, I am going to do this in the way that I think best. It's a dangerous path, but at least it is wise to face it. There are others, then, who are fighting it and fighting for purity, and that's another matter altogether. But what are you tapping into? The only other alternative is the objective revelation of God. You're either going to subjectively tap into what is consensus or what you feel on some level, what comes from man, or we're going to tap into the objective revelation of God. And that is what Proverbs 5, 1 and 2 is assuming. That there is a wisdom from above, that there is a wisdom from externally, external to us, that comes to us and must be heeded. That there is a standard that is unchanging. All of that is assumed here. Morality is objectively revealed by God to His children for His glory and for their eternal joy. So the God who created us loves us enough to explain to us what is right and what is wrong. And how we are to get along in the world He designed for our pleasure. And the world is going to swing this way and swing that way over time and centuries and nations. It will continue to change, but God's Word remains the same. It is a straight line that never alters. This truth from above, truth from outside of us, is always rooted in two realities. Think on this. The first reality is the unchanging character of our Father. And the second reality is the creative design of God our Creator. So it is the character of God and His creative design that is the straight line that never alters. We root then the instruction in Proverbs 5 back to the creative account in Genesis chapter 1 may remember these words, or turn to the first chapter of Genesis to remember these important words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 31 of that chapter, after the account of creation is sketched out in chapter 1, before the filling out in chapter 2, we read, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. It was very good what God had made. The intricate design, the stunning beauty, the utter immensity that we witness in nature announces a creator. It announces a designer as it all holds together. And the Bible reveals in the first verse what our eyes witness, that God created the universe out of nothing. Now before there was any sin in God's perfect world, He issued His law to Adam and Eve in chapter 2. And He did this not as a corrective to their sin. There was none. But as a reflection of His character, of who God is and how He relates to His creatures. It's a perfect world and God says, don't do this. It's a perfect world and He says, do this. This law of God reflects at every turn His character. It is who God is, how He relates to His creatures that He is revealing in His law. And every law of God reflects that character. Nothing He commands us to do or not to do is ever arbitrary. It flows from His being. Now some of His commands may have a short shelf life such as the commands concerning animal sacrifice. But every command of God flows from His holy and perfect character, which He longs to communicate to us for our joy. But even more to the point at hand, God's law always conforms to the design of God, our Creator. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the earth. Let me ask, as we think on this, God, the perfect designer and creator, makes Adam and Eve a man and a woman. What made Eve a woman? What made her a woman? Did she have no head? Did she have three eyes, four legs, a tail? How did you know she was a woman? No, Eve was physically designed to bear children. What made Adam a man? He was physically designed to to father children. Adam could not carry a baby in his womb. Only Eve could do that. Adam was designed to continue his work unaltered throughout the entire gestation of their children. So Adam was built to protect Eve in some sense, to provide for her in a way that she could not equally relate to him in exactly that way. Eve was designed to nurture their child in her womb, to give birth to that child, and to feed the child with milk from her breast. That's what made her a woman. That's what made her Eve in distinction from Adam. She was by her very nature then a nurturer of life. He was by nature a provider, a protector, an initiator. And this relationship was to come together in beauty. It was God's design. I want to talk specifically here for a moment to those of you who live with your parents. Teenagers, young people, hear me. Take this in. I'm talking to you specifically as I talk to all of us. Just not as interested in people who are married, husband and wife. They've got some things figured out. But let's talk about this. God designed your body to be either a father, or a mother. That is not something you choose. It's not something that your parents choose. It is God's gift to you. His gift just the way you are. Now, That does not mean that you will necessarily become a father or a mother someday. God may not want that for you. That may not be His design for your life. Jesus never became a father, but He was equipped to be one. And in a broken world, your body may not even allow you to be a father, to father a child or to bear a child. And that's okay if that is part of a broken world. And it's hard, but that's all right. That's not your wrong. But God made your body a certain way and that is His kindness to you and it is His kindness to the rest of the world. So to all of us then, Men, the creative account indicates that we are to move into the world in a fatherly way. Women, you are designed to move into the world in a motherly way. It will be very similar, there will be much crossover, and yet it will be dissimilar. And that is good. That is God's design and His purpose for us. We are to celebrate our distinctiveness and to serve others as a man or as a woman, as God made us in the womb and at our birth. In Genesis chapter 2 then, in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock of the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. He will cling to, he will be glued to, united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Every command that God issues concerning sexuality is rooted in his purposeful design of Adam and Eve. Verse 20, Eve was created to complete Adam. She is different from him and is designed to work in cooperation with Adam as a steward of the earth. Verses 21 through 23, Adam and Eve are the same flesh and blood. There is a corresponding distinctiveness and a likeness that they find in one another. Verses 24 and 25, there is a relationship of deeply rooted intimacy that is intended here as man and woman in this one flesh naked relationship, an intimacy that runs deep. They are naked and without shame. Nancy Piercy in her book quotes Anglican theologian Oliver O'Donnell who writes it so simply and says it well. He writes, to have a male body is to have a body structurally ordered to loving union with a female body and vice versa. It's that simple. Let's think on it for a moment again. God lovingly, purposefully designed our bodies to function one way sexually. He defined that function to operate with the corresponding sex in a relationship of intimacy and depth. So at conception, we were fashioned according to God's design to cry and crawl and toddle and walk into life as a potential father or mother. So one who says my body's design does not match the sexual orientation of my heart is dishonoring both the Creator and dishonoring his or her body. God's good gift for all of us is to integrate our inner being with our body, which God created good. And Piercy in her book brings this out. She points to one who wrote a book that said, a transsexual author that said, the title was, I Am Not My Body. I Am Not My Body. That is, Me, who I am, inside is one thing. My body on the outside is another. What that is saying is my body is trash. Inside female, a perspective that overwhelms the outside and the body parts that God designed. That is a twisted spot that people get into only when they listen to what? when they listen to the subjective, self-determining, ever-shifting information that man determines in self-alienating rejection of the Creator's biologically intended design for what is good. So, are you with me? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror without clothes sometime. And know that what you see there is beautiful. It is God's gift. It is good. Now, it may have been more beautiful once upon a time. (laughs) The fall may have left your body indeed scarred and broken. Sadly, that is the experience. And as a young, healthy person, you may look in the mirror and not like all that you see. But get this. God designed you from conception. Sin has twisted your body, Christian, undoubtedly, but one day, let's think on it, your physical body as a man, as a woman, will be resurrected. It will be glorified, and you will look stunningly good for all eternity. Everything you don't like when you look in that mirror will be fixed. Know this, and live with this hope a hope in the resurrection of the body. Don't go on the sideline down that dualistic trail where people sometimes say, well, this loved one's died and left behind the earth suit, escaped the weak body. Well, they have, in a sense, but that body will be resurrected. We are body and spirit. God giving us and designing what we are and wanting us to integrate the inner with the outer for all of our lives. Know this and know that resurrection is in your future. Both of these sources cannot be right. This young man is either going to, back to Proverbs 5, listen to what his father says, He's going to listen to a message that's external, that comes from the Creator and the Designer. He's going to align his life with that, or he's going to go his own direction. Now this passage obviously just tracks down one direction. We seem in this culture to have 45 to deal with all at once. But in this setting, at this time, temptation comes from outside, from usually in that setting, a married woman pursuing a young man and so we ask then as we move through this what is sacrificed if we venture out on our own against God's revealed will that's a question we'll just let hover in the air why are we so far apart from the world answer sexual ethics are coming out of the heart of man or they're coming out of the revealed word of God those two are massively different sources. But letting the second question hover, what is lost when we turn away from God's revelation? There is an encouragement here, first of all, in verses 3 to 14, to arm ourselves with the knowledge that sexual immorality dries up the vitality of life. Sexual immorality dries up the vitality of life. Verse 3, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, to the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So verses one through three, there are many sources of temptation to stray beyond the parameters for sex that God ordains. And these sources are genuinely tempting. In this particular instance, the adulteress' speech oozes with sweet delight. Her words mesmerize and have the power to melt resistance. This is no moralistic approach. This is this is tempting. Know this. Understand this. Verses 4 through 6 the father faithfully then warns his son Go into her lair and you will not escape unharmed. Break out of God's defined boundaries and you will suffer. Such an illicit relationship will drag you down. She may not even have any idea what she's doing, but you need to know what you're doing. Don't ruin your life, is the counsel. Verses seven through eight. It is as if the sexual temptation is like a whirlpool on a river. Stay clear of it. Run away from it. S- paddle away from it in the analogy. But run away from it, such as Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. There are certain situations you need to escape. Verse seven. And now, O son, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. You see it there again. The external counsel. Verse seven. Keep your way far from her, from her and do not go near the door of her house. Escape her. She's like that whirlpool drawing you in. Run. Verse 9, lest you give your honor to others. Here's the result of not heeding the counsel. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. It will sap your life. There is pleasure in it. There is attraction in it. To get outside of God's parameters is always tempting. But it will dry you up. Sexual sin will drain the life away from you in the end. Verse 12, And you will say how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. There's the anguish of the soul that says, why did I not listen? Why did I allow myself to get drug into this? I did not, verse 13, listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly in the congregation. Listen, son, there's a word outside There's an external word from the Creator, and He calls to you and warns you and says, Don't go down that road. Your life will be drained away. It might be slowly, but it will be surely. There will be payday someday. The only way out for any of us is to be armed with this knowledge, to avoid this sin, and when we trip, to repent and return. That's it. Thirdly then, arm yourself with the knowledge that sexual morality yields the exquisite delights of intimacy. Immorality dries up the vitality of life. In comparison, we need to know and be armed with the truth that sexual morality yields the exquisite delights of intimacy. An intimacy that God designs and can only be found in His way. And so the call here, the moral imperative, verse 15, is to drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. It's flowery speech, but there was a well in town in the village. And everybody would go to that public well, but you might at your small place have a cistern that collected rainwater. Or maybe even a little well that was yours and yet it was private. He uses that as an analogy to pursue a one-flesh, naked relationship between husband and wife that is yours alone. It's your well. No one else's. The rationale for this to drink water from that well. Verse 16, Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not the strangers with you. Some debate as to the interpretation of this, whether it's referring to children, but at least, why let sexual escapades mark you where you are running around everywhere like a, like a dog off a leash? Sex is designed by God for marriage. Keep it in that realm. There is an intimacy, there is a beauty that is there that cannot be found elsewhere. And the encouragement, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed. Let God smile upon this relationship is the idea. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Why would you give up this intimacy for this folly? Why give up exquisite delight on the one hand for something that will dry you up and take your vitality? Don't go there. Sex is designed by God for marriage. Keep it in that realm is the point. Did you just read with me these verses? Take to heart what they said. This is the God our world says hates sex, sees it as evil. I read an article in preparation for this where a secular doctor was just saying, the title, in fact, of the whole thing was Sex Isn't Sinful. No kidding. Now, whoever said it was. But we got to keep talking. In other words, the idea was that God is a killjoy. That the Christian church just seems to crush sexuality. Is that what God says? Let her be a loving doe, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always with her love. That's the voice of God. We know our God better than that. But what he also knows in this encouragement in verses 18 through 20 is that there is danger in getting outside of God's plan. But I think we should note and emphasize that the emphasis here falls on pleasure. And not... Interestingly enough, even in this spot, upon procreation. There is no question what procreation means in God's design and the goodness of it. But that's not the point here. The world accuses us of wanting to stifle pleasure, being killjoys with respect to sex, but let it be clear that God's agenda is for a married couple to be intoxicated with one another in a way that could not possibly be pure with anyone else involved. The picture here is of two souls created by God with different but corresponding bodies finding intimacy and oneness under the smile of God. In the spirit of Genesis 2, what we have here at the end of chapter 5 in Proverbs is united One flesh, naked without shame. We find here two souls that are entirely uncovered. No one else can see me this way. No one. No one but this one. Just this love of my life who is wholly devoted to me for the rest of our lives together on earth. This one. This is nakedness that will not be betrayed. This is nakedness that cannot be shared with others. It cannot be broken off. It cannot be dismissed. It cannot be despised ever for as long as we both shall live. This is God's design and gift. This is no sexual relationship as an end in itself or some merely biological function stripped of emotion and relational attachment. This is complete vulnerability of soul and body and joyful expression. It's not a relationship created by the sex. It is sex as an expression of a deep relationship under the smile and grace of God. And I think it should be heart-wrenching, absolutely heart-wrenching to us as believers that this is what the world gives up. This is what those who pursue immoral sexual pleasure sacrifice. This is the drying up and the sucking away of vitality that comes when we trash the design of God and say, I'll do it my way. Christian, remember this. The world that screams at us long ago gave up any chance. Of such intimacy. Don't be knocked off your game. And don't listen to what they say about our God. They don't know what they're talking about. The final warning really kind of dovetails with the first two verses of the chapter. For a man's ways, verse 21, are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. So take the right one. God sees everything. No one else may, but He does. And He ponders. That is, God contemplates if we are conforming to His purposes or not. Verse 22, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare Him, and He's held fast in the cords of His sin. A reprisal of that first section of Proverbs 5. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of His great folly He is led astray. So the warning is sounded again. Sin is is its own traps. The trap is not getting caught. The sin itself is the trap. And the death here, I think, in verse 23, is not physical death necessarily, but parallel to going astray. The path of wandering from God is the path of death. It sucks away the vitality of life. These are I mean, this is a conversation that's not particularly easy to have. It is a private matter in many respects, and yet we must recognize in our culture, in our setting, that this is a magnetic problem. It is constantly drawing God's people away to see God as the giver of the best gift as evil or is not there. And His followers who enjoy this gift to be seen as those who just want to repress others. And I realize as well in the response to these words that, that we come at it from many different angles. There are those that are here facing discouragement in the, in the face of these words. There are those here who are wishful, maybe those who are struggling with sin and feel guilty, maybe those who are confused and don't know if there's any, ever any such future for them, and on and on it goes. But for all of us, this is what I want to bring us to face again. There is a decision to align ourselves with God's gracious plan or to go our own way. That why in the road must be taken. The rest of your life conforming your life to the Creator's design and His good gift of sexuality or saying, I'll get it where I want it my way. You've got to choose. You're going to go down one path or the other and it will very much affect the way you live everyday life. And I plead with you, come to your Creator and live. Come to His way. Follow His path those caught in a web of sexual temptation and sin, this message can take on a whole nother hue. For some, perhaps, it's just a wake-up call to be reminded and a call to you to repent and to seek accountability. That here today, under the ministry of the Word, the Spirit of God is working in your heart to say, change is necessary. I need a Christian brother or sister. I need to confess sin. I need to get things on track. I need to end a relationship. I need to end a practice. We need each other to this end. And that might be what this is. But if that is the case, in particular to, to those who are discouraged, to those who might say in light of these thoughts, I fall short, I cannot recover, know this and don't forget it, that God's forgiveness and grace in our brokenness, is real. It's real grace. Do not despair. Run to Christ. He will embrace you. He will keep you. It may involve making amends. It may involve seeking forgiveness. It may mean changing patterns of your life or any number of other excruciatingly hard responses. But God loves you. God forgives sin. He calls you to Himself and He says, I want you. I want you. Come to me. Embrace God's forgiveness through repentance and you may be surprised again by God's soul-refreshing grace. He loves you. Love Him. Come to Him in your brokenness. There are those without a mate, those who are single, those who are widows, those who are widowers among us. And this hits us a different way. It hits you uniquely. In fact, verse 15 for a single individual can be a a word of absolute discouragement. I want to drink water from my own cistern, but I don't have it available. I can't reach it. I think it would be important to fight that feeling. I don't think it's wrong to face it and to recognize that there's something good that's missing. If you have an arm amputated, you're going to know it's missing, and it's right to miss it. But it's not right to turn that into the whole focus. Remember that Jesus, speaking of salvation in His name, said, in the one that I come to save, there will be rivers of delight that will flow from His inner being. There is a delight in God that matches no other. We want to come to that delight. We want to emphasize that delight. I encourage you, be challenging your mind to think in discipline of the fulfillment that Christ is to your soul. There is a delight there, there is an intimacy there that cannot be matched by sexual activity, even of the best sort. The joys of fidelity are found in full measure in Christ, not in a marital relationship. Keep coming back there in belief and trust in God. He loves you, just as He loves any married couple that enjoys His gift of sexuality. He loves you. Walk with Him, know Him, come to Him. And as we think of a, as a community, we are facing an away game here. We need to recognize that sex is not life's greatest pleasure. It's not worth every risk. Knowing Jesus is. Obeying God and serving His cause and pointing others to Christ is. As you hear the world scoff at virginity or biblical celibacy or sexual morality... Remember that the Holy Spirit lives in you, empowers obedience to the Word that the world cannot understand and satisfies your soul in a way that this world has never experienced. So when they're screaming their position, no, we have something they don't have. We have the very Spirit of God living within us. There is a joy and a satisfaction that is there. This is no easy calling. But when did take up your cross and follow me ever strike you as as easy? On the other hand, let's not forget that Jesus' yoke is easy. In other words, if you think sexual fidelity is hard, try sexual immorality. That's a lot harder. There is, at the end of the day, is there not, a radical transformation that is necessary. This is not a message that our world embraces easily. It is not a message that we embrace by nature of our flesh, of the corruption that is within us because of sin. But this is, by the grace of God, the message of salvation in Jesus. He really does transform us. And He transforms desires. Take a step forward. Take one step in, in repentance and trust, and keep walking with Him. He changes people. He's changing me. He's changing you. All of this hinges on the salvation that Christ has given because He, in fact, has dealt with and crushed the root of sin through His death in the place of sinners. To pay the penalty and the cost of our sin. To suffer all that we should suffer for our sexual sins and a million others. Christ has paid that cost. And by paying that cost by dying in our place, by rising from the dead to defeat death and to make sure that our ugly bodies are beautiful through all eternity. In that resurrection hope, we move forward and trust in Him. It's a sanctification project. It's a picking up of our cross and following Him. It's a putting on of the yoke of Jesus. And all of that is good, good, good. It's very good. We need each other we need his word in this sanctification project and by his grace this time that we've spent together here today and our time of worship is part of that sanctification to wean us off of the idols of our hearts and this culture and to feed us on the ever satisfying pleasure of knowing God in Christ indwelt by his spirit That salvation status, that belonging to God as his child is offered to sinners. Not to those who can fix themselves, but to those who are broken and admitted. He will forgive, come to him and follow his path. There is an intimacy between a man and a woman under God's design that cannot be matched by this world. And that intimacy is simply a reflection of the intimacy that we can have eternally with God. Do not chase foolish idols and bypass that intimacy forever. That is no exchange. And I call you, come to Christ today. Come to that intimate satisfaction. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know entirely what You desire to do with these words today, with the sounding forth of what Your Word has revealed and the application that we strive to do faithfully to that text. But I pray that You do a great work in me, in us, that we would pursue an intimacy with You that is deep and lasting and eternal. And I pray that that intimacy, that oneness, that union, would overshadow and infuse and uphold and found everything that we do in this life, every pleasure that we seek. This is not a sermon merely about sexuality. You know. This is a sermon about how we relate to You. I pray that we'd not lose that point. I pray for those struggling with sin, for those struggling with loneliness, those struggling with discouragement. May we find hope in the death and resurrection of our Savior. And may we come and heed Your call to oneness with You. May our souls someday, someday revel in the nakedness of a glorified, transformed body that lives without sin in Your presence on this renewed earth forever. Bring that resurrection day. Bring that transformation in Your time. And until then, may we journey on as pilgrims, trusting Your Word, not our own, and knowing an intimacy with You that our world cannot find. And for those who know not that intimacy, maybe even because they have chased the idols of this world sexually, I pray that you would bring them to the feet of Christ today to receive forgiveness and grace. Break through the hard heart, soften it, bring light to the blind eyes. And may we rejoice in the salvation that we have in you. Through Jesus we pray.